Hi, friends. Welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends About Jesus. Or like how it's been going lately, story time with Nate about Jesus. Now, honestly, today we're going to do the exact same thing. We're going to jump right in with the stories. They're so compelling. They're so good. But I want you to remember that they're not just random stories. They're a carefully curated selection. So what are these stories telling us about the nature of the God? Why did they, they, why did they grab these stories about all, out of all the possible stories? What did they tell us about the nature of God? And what did they tell us about our relationship to him? Got it? I want you to think about this as we go through here. All right, let's jump in. Mark chapter 5. Jesus and his friends go over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to a place called Gard, uh, Gadarenes. I'm going to say that wrong. Gadarenes. It's on the east coast of the Sea of Galilee. And um, large uh, Gentile population, they keep pigs over there. And as they arrive, they are immediately met out of the tombs by a man with an unclean spirit. Now, this guy, like, just goes nuts. Nobody can tie him up. They can't chain him down. Anytime they manage to get handcuffs on him, he straight up busts them to pieces. Like, he spends the night, and this is creepy to me, he spends the, his day and his night cutting himself with stones and crying. Well, it's like horror movie creepy stuff right there. But when he saw Jesus from far away, he runs to him and worships Jesus and cries with a loud voice, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of the most high? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. Now remember, one of Mark's main deals is to convince you that Jesus is not just some backwoods redneck, but actually the son of God. And strangely enough, he does this by repeatedly having demons testify of Jesus. Now, why that selection? Well, number one, they don't have the veil over their minds, right? And so it's uh, creepy, but accurate witness in some ways. Other than that, though, I, I'm really kind of thrown why he has this happen over and over. Maybe just that it does happen over and over, and that's why he includes it. But Jesus says to the unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And he says, what is thy name? And he answered, my name is Legion, for we are many, meaning the demons, spirits possessing this individual. There, there's more than just one. Uh, and forthwith, Jesus gave them leave and the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine. And the swine herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. There were about 2,000 swine and they were choked in the sea and drowned. I got to be real with you. This story confuses the heck out of me. Like I get the healing of this guy. I get the healing of an individual that nobody else could come close to touching here. But just why does the unclean spirits want to go into the bodies of pigs? Like why does Jesus let them? Why do they immediately drown themselves? Well, I think I get that a little bit, but I don't know that I get it completely, but I think there's a central point here on how important our bodies are. Don't waste your time here on planet Earth. 
Like this story just illustrates how wonderful it is to have a physical form. Stop living in your mind. Stop living virtually. Be alive right now. It is so infinitely valuable to be alive. Now, the, the swine weren't just random feral swine. They were actually a herd of swine and their swine herds, the people keeping the swine, ran when they see like a bunch of pigs just charge into the ocean, this is the Sea of Galilee. This isn't like normal behavior. And so they run into the city and ask what they should do. And when the people of the city come, they see the guy who was possessed sitting, clothed, and in his right mind listening to Jesus. And this freaks them out. Like this is so beyond what they would expect. They're just like, what is going on here? And the eyewitnesses told the people in the city how it all went down and how this guy was freed. And for whatever reason, they began to pray Jesus to depart out of their coast. I don't know if it's because of the death of the pigs. If it is, Jesus kind of puts these Gentiles behind the eight ball. It's just a weird story in that way. I need clarification. But here's the part that's not weird. When Jesus gets back into his ship, and for all intents and purposes, it kind of seems like he crosses the sea for this one man. That's telling you something about God. And the man he healed prays for him, just pleads with him that he can just follow him. But Jesus doesn't let him. Like some people, Jesus is like, sell all that you have and follow me. And some people pleading to follow him are told, go home to thy friends and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee and how he has had compassion on thee. And to this guy's credit, he doesn't whine, he doesn't barter. He departs and he uh, publishes in the Decapolis. Um, how great things Jesus had done for him. One of the, the first missionaries in this kind of Gentile section. Um, and just, it seems like Jesus is working case by case here. Frequently, he tells people to not tell anybody about what's going on. And then he tells this guy to go out and become one of the first missionaries. Um, it really is just individual by individual with Jesus. Well, anyways, they get over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and there's a bunch of people gathered there almost expecting him to come. And one of the people that are there is, is a high up guy in the synagogue, a guy named Jairus. And he falls down on the ground like, I don't know when the last time you felt so moved with desire and humility that just you would do anything that you just fell at the feet of somebody and begged them for for their help that's what this man does and this is a big humiliation for this guy who's a ruler and you hear why he says my little girl's gonna die please come and put your hands on her so that you can heal her and she'll live i love I love this stance of confidence that Jairus makes, right? I don't know if this is the stance we usually take. Usually our stance when we approach God is desperate. 
but it's full of fear for the worst case scenario rather than faith in the best case scenario. Hmm. We got to do some mental work on that, I think. And so Jesus follows him. And there's a bunch of people following him, following Jairus. And they thronged him. Isn't that a great old English word? Just so more impactful than what we use. And as the people are bumping into him, thronging him, there's a certain woman which had an issue of blood for 12 years. Now, likely, likely, we don't know this for sure, but likely this has to do with menstruation. And so it's not just the, the weakness then, the pain that she suffers, the loss of money, but she would have been under the law of Moses, ritually unclean for this time, isolated. And she wants to get better, suffered many things of physicians, spent all that she had, but it only grew worse. But when she heard of Jesus, she pushes into the crowd and touched his garment because she is thinking, if I could just touch his clothes, I'll be whole. And straightway at the touch of his clothes, the blood issue is resolved and she felt renewed in her body. She's healed of the plague. Again, the stance of faith. Are we taking such stances? Or are we hedging our bets too much? Like, I'm thinking we go full scent here. You tell me. Jesus, as you know, immediately knows of this power that flows out from him. It says virtue. That's another word for power here. And he turns about in the press and says, who touched my clothes? And the disciples are like, are you joking me right now? <laughs> Look at these people. But he looked around about to see her that had done this thing. The woman fearing and trembling. She's actually shaking. She's so afraid right now. But she owns it. She comes forward and she falls down before him like Jairus had just done. And she told him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go thy Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. Now again, why these stories? What is it revealing about the nature of God? What is it telling us about how he interacts with us and how we can interact with him? But while he's having this discussion with this woman, one of the the ruler of the synagogue's um, house members runs up and he says, your daughter's dead. Leave Jesus. But when Jesus heard this, he says to Jairus, he says, Be not afraid, only believe. <laughs> Let's go! Will you please take him seriously on this command to be not afraid? It is a command. Only believe. Uh, This might be the most important message right now. It might be the most important message of your life. I really do think that it will change everything about you if you do do take him seriously. So they get to Jairus' house and Jesus only lets Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, go in. And and there's people outside weeping and wailing for this daughter's uh, death. It's such a waste of life and it's a tragic, sad event. And Jesus deliberately provokes them. The girl's clearly dead. And he says, 
Why are you weeping? She's not dead. She sleeps. Now, they, they know she's dead. But he can straight controvert your known reality. He can violate your known reality. Anything you believe is just facts and unchangeable. Jesus is like, mm, is it though? I love this. He, he takes all these people who wouldn't believe, who laughed him to scorn, and he t- k- uh, kicks them out of the house. Uh, and fulfilling his own sort of don't cast your pearls before swine, uh, those that aren't ready yet aren't ready. And so he, he doesn't do it in front of them. And then they go into her. He takes the de- dead girl by the hand and says, Damsel, I say unto thee, arise. And straightway the damsel arose and walked. Who's in charge here? Who's in charge here? That's right, not you, Satan. Get the heck out of here. She rose up and she walked. She's 12 years old. She's my daughter's age. And they were astonished with a great astonishment. But unlike the man possessed, he says, don't tell anybody. Hmm. Let's keep going. This man, this man, this man is so compelling. Matthew chapter 9, and when Jesus departed, two blind men followed him crying, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on us. And the people are like, shut up. But they just keep yelling, Jesus, have mercy on us. And finally they they get to Jesus's house and Jesus turns and he says to them, do you believe that I am able to cure your blindness? That's a big thing. Like, we cannot cure blindness right now. We, even with LASIK, we can only make bag vision temporarily perfect, right? Like, curing blindness? And without hesitation, they said, yes, we do. And he touches their eyes and says, according to your faith, be it unto you. Be watching. What do these stories tell us about our relationship to God? According to your faith, be it unto you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus tells them, see that no man know it. But they just can't help it. Once they depart, they spread abroad his fame in all the country they're at. And as they go out, there comes another guy, a guy who can't speak, a guy dumb, and it says possessed of a devil. And when the devil was cast out, he was able to speak. And the multitude is just like, what is going on here? But as the Pharisees see it, they're like, he's just casting out devils through the prince of devils. He's just like the devil in charge of other devils. (laughs) And Jesus goes about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. See, what Jesus is doing is he's setting himself up in direct opposition to Satan. Every time he heals a sickness, every time he overcomes death, every time he causes the blind to see and the dumb to talk, and when he brings people back to, to life, he is saying, this is the kingdom of God here. Satan, you might be usurping authority temporarily, but I'm the one in charge here. And and when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because so many are coming that they don't bring enough food. And 
He's just like, it looks like a sheep with no shepherd. And he says to his disciples, man, there's so many people that need help. The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. So he's like, pray therefore that the Lord of the harvest will send forth laborers into his harvest. In other words, let's get some helpers. And so he does just that. He's got a, a group of individuals who have been following him closely for some time now. And Jesus goes up into a mountain and he calls a few of these disciples who have been with him for a good little bit. And they came to him and he, he lays hands on and ordains 12 of these disciples to be sent forth. Now the, the phrase in Greek for one sent forth is apostle right here, apostolo. So these are apostles, those sent forth from Jesus. And he gave these 12 power to do what he's doing to heal the sick and cast out devils and in so doing violate Satan's usurpation of power and establish the kingdom of God on earth. So here, here's the people he calls. Simon, a guy he surnames Peter. Now, as you know, this means rock, which is just an outstanding nickname. Um, likely he is listed first in this list of 12 apostles due to his later prominence in leading the church. Um, Peter, as you remember, is introduced to Jesus through his brother, Andrew, who was John the Baptist's disciple. And then you, you also have James, the son of Zebedee and John, the brother of James. Um, James is probably older because his name's listed first. And then you got John younger. Um, these guys, he, he nicknames them the sons of thunder. Dude, these are some sweet nicknames. Jesus, like the rock and the sons of thunder. I'm pumped already. Like, why is, why does he nickname them this? Well, part of it (laughs) is just a cool nickname. And part of it may be a call out to another time where in Luke chapter nine, um, Jesus is traveling towards Jerusalem And he sends some messengers into a village of Samaritans uh, asking for a place to stay, but the village would not receive him because he's a Jew. Um, And James and John are like, dude, let's call down fire from heaven just like Elijah did. (laughs) Jesus turns to him and is like, you don't even know what you're talking about. I'm not come here to destroy people. I'm come here to save people. So um, the, this nickname Sons of Thunder may be a little bit of a reminder of who Jesus' true identity is and just like, hey, the, some, of their, some of their passion, right? Now you remember uh, John, James, Peter, James, and John. John was also a disciple of John the Baptist. And so he and Andrew are kind of the first two to interact with Jesus. And John's likely the one that introduces his brother James to Jesus. So then we got Andrew coming next. We talked about him. And then there's a guy named Philip. And you remember Philip meets Jesus in John chapter one after Jesus' baptism. Uh, he's from the same t- town as Andrew and Peter are. And then you have Bartholomew. We don't know much about him unless he uh, is also Nathaniel, who Philip uh, went and told about Jesus, but... Uh, that's kind of a, a weak link to say Bartholomew is um, Nathaniel, so we don't know. Then you got Matthew. He's a tax collector, just absolute Jewish sellout. People hated him, turned disciple and gospel author of Matthew right there. 
Then you got Thomas. We don't know how Thomas joined up with Jesus, um, but we'll, we'll hear from him later on in the story. And you got James, the son of Alphaeus. Um, and so when Jesus calls Matthew to follow him, uh, Levi is described as the son of Alphaeus. So some scholars take this to mean that Matthew and James are actually brothers, but the other brother pairs are all like clearly mentioned as uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John. So maybe they're brothers and maybe they just have two dads named Alpheus, kind of like you would have two dads named Jake, right? Um, then there's Thaddeus. Uh, Thaddeus' uh, first name is probably actually Judas, Um but then Judas Iscariot does Judas Iscariot things and it's kind of like being named Adolf in the 1950s. So he is um, Judas Thaddeus is variously known as Jude Thaddeus, Judas Thaddeus, Jude Thaddeus, Jude of James or Lebius. So that's why you get that different name. Then you got Simon the Canaanite uh, that Jesus calls to be one of his apostles. He's one that we don't know a lot uh, about, most likely the Appalachian Canaanite. It doesn't come from being in in the land of Canaan, but rather from the the town of Cana or Cana. Uh, That's where the the waters turn to wine. It's probably where he's from. Uh, He's also known as Simon the Zealot. We don't know if this is because he was just zealous or more likely, it was that he was a member of the, the zealot group that believed in establishing a Jewish theocracy through force, rebellion, and assassination. That's possible. And then finally, there's Judas Iscariot. Yeah. Iscariot means the man of Kerioth, and we don't know what that means. It may be a corruption of the Latin word sicarius, meaning dagger man, uh, the the group that we talked about with the zealots that that were known for committing acts of terrorism by assassinating people in crowds and using long sicarii, uh, long knives hidden in their cloaks. This interpretation is problematic. It could be that Iscariot means the liar or the false one from Hebrew. Um, we just don't know. But there's your 12. And when Jesus had called unto him these 12 and gave them power against unclean spirits, against Satan in particular, to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease, he says, as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Notice Jesus's message is about his kingdom on earth. I think we're missing it when we focus on our individual acts. It is about being in God's kingdom. Who is saved? Everybody in the kingdom. What does it take being associated with King Jesus? (laughs) It's not like, are you good enough? It's, are you in the kingdom? That's the difference here. It is a complete rebellion against Satan's corruption of this earth, right? He says, go out and oppose Satan, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely have ye received, freely give. What a great line. Now, don't worry about money. Don't don't take gold or silver or brass in your purse. Nor script for your journey. Don't even take two coats or extra shoes or extra staves. 
Like, you are worthy. I will take care of you. Trust me, take this leap of faith. And whatever city or town you enter into, inquire who is worthy, or in other words, who, who's interested, who's welcoming, who's, who's substantial. And, and there abide until you go thence. And when you come to a house and salute it, and if the house be welcoming and take your message seriously, or in other words, worthy, let your peace come upon it. And if they be not welcoming, or if they don't take your message seriously, let your peace return to you. And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear your words, when you depart out of that house or city, shake the dust off your feet. Basically, this is a, a statement that this is on you, not me. You're responsible for your own life right there, okay? And he says, if that happens, I'm telling you, destruction is coming. It's going to be worse than Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment. Now, guys, I'm sending you out to establish my kingdom. And you're basically sheep in the midst of wolves. It's a dangerous world out there. So I need you to be wise. But you, wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. I need you to be smart about how you're doing it. Use your head in how you interact. Paul, you're going to see, is going to be a masterpiece of doing this. But beware about men because they're not going to like your message. They're going to scourge you in their synagogues. You're going to be brought before governors and kings for my sake and testimony against them. And they're going to deliver you. But when they do, take no thought how you shall speak. Like stop worrying about the future. Stop planning. Stop fretting. What a good message for us. For the words you're going to speak are going to be given to you in that same hour. Listen to this counsel. Stop this endless repeat of what you're going to say, what you're going to do next, how you're going to act in every scenario. Just trust God and go with the flow. It'll work. For it is not ye that speak, but the spirit of your father which speaketh in you. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death. Ooh, that's a harsh turn suddenly. And the father, the child, and the children shall rise up against the parents and cause them to be put at death. Whoa! Now, at the risk of skipping too far ahead, this verse is going to get very, very real for all 12 of these men. According to tradition, all of these men are going to die very violent deaths after a lifetime of preaching from India to Spain and everywhere in between. Um, Biblical scholar Justo Gonzalez says, from its very beginning, Christianity was no easy matter. The Lord died on the cross and soon thereafter, Stephen was stoned to death and James was killed at Herod Agrippa's order. Ever since then, there have been those who have had to seal their witness with their blood. Like we said, Stephen stoned to death. James of Zebedee, John's brother, uh, he's beheaded. Philip is going to be scourged, imprisoned, and then crucified. Matthew is going to get slain with a big old halberd or axe. James, um, the, the less, James the younger, is going to be beaten and then stoned and then have his brains dashed out with a fuller's club. Matthias, who fills the place of Judas Iscariot, is going to be stoned and then beheaded. Andrew, Peter's brother, is going to be crucified on a cross transversely, meaning in the shape of an X. Mark's dragged to pieces. Peter crucified upside down. Paul beheaded. Jude, also known as Thaddeus, crucified. Bartholomew beaten at length, and when he doesn't die, he was crucified. 
Thomas is thrust through with a spear. Luke is hanged from an olive tree by idolatrous Greek priests. Simon Zelades is crucified. John cast into a, a cauldron of oil. And it doesn't stop with then. Like under the Romans, you have Christians that are crucified. Some are dressed up in animal skins and have angry dogs released on them and attack them. Women are dragged behind mad bulls. Some Christians are impaled on stakes and then lit on fires as garden lamps at parties. Yeah. Jesus isn't joking when he says, Ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. It's real. It's real for them. But, he says, He that endureth to the end shall be saved. This is different than Mormon's constant refrain in the Book of Mormon that if you keep the commandments, you shall prosper in the land. Can you reconcile those two? What do you make of that? Jesus goes on to the 12. He says, when they persecute you in a city, go to another city. Uh, Go to all the cities, right? You guys as my disciples are not above the master. Uh, If they have called me Beelzebub, how much more shall they call you who are of my household? But don't be afraid of them. Nothing is covered that won't be revealed. I'll, I'll tell you in the darkness that you speak it in the light. Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall to the ground without your father. Like the very hairs of your head are numbered. God knows you. He's watching you. What is, this, what is Jesus telling you about himself? What is he telling you about his father? What is he telling you about our relationship to him? Fear ye not. Ye are more valuable than many sparrows. Whosoever shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my father which is in heaven. Whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Don't think that I'm come to send peace on earth. I'm not come to send peace, but a sword. Jesus, you can't say that. That that does not make a good Christmas carol. (laughs) Boy, man, Jesus, who is he? Listen to this. Jesus says, I am come to set men against one another. I'm come to set a son against his father. I'm come to set the daughter against her mother. I'm come to set the daughter-in-law against the mother-in-law. And Jesus is seriously, you can't say stuff like that. Jesus doesn't talk like that. A man's foes shall be in his own family. He that loves his mother or his father more than me is not taking me serious, is not substantial enough. He that loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Oh, what do we make of that one? That one stings, man. I know plenty of people who worship at the altar of family rather than the altar of God. And it gets tricky when it comes to, to God, if we worship God himself rather than the sauce on top, right? Like, what do we really worship? C.S. Lewis, as you, you know, like, I, I just think he's genius at, at helping us understand that. And, and he, he takes on this idea of 
who we worship and what we love in uh, his book, The Great Divorce, which if you haven't read, go read it. It's outstanding. And so there um, you, you have Pam, who is a ghost, and then the late Reginald, this is spirit, and you have her son, Michael. Now, Pam's son, Michael, died when he was still a boy, and it's clear in the story that Pam never recovered from this death. And so in this story, The Great Divorce, there's kind of an in-between space between um, earth and heaven and hell here. And Pam, as a ghost, uh, wants to see her son. um, And Reginald, this ambassador from heaven, is sent to meet her to help her get into the, the presence of God. But when Pam sees Reginald, she's clearly disappointed. She says, oh, Reginald, it's you, is it? Yes, dear, said the spirit. I know you expected someone else. Can you? I hope you can. Be a little glad to even see me for the present. I did think Michael would have come, said Pam. And then almost fiercely, he is here, of course. He's there far up on the mountains. Why hasn't he come to meet me? Didn't he know? My dear, Reginald says. Don't worry, it will all come right presently. It wouldn't have done, not yet. He wouldn't be able to see you or hear you as you are in the present. You'd be totally invisible to Michael, but we'll soon build you up. And I love this imagery C.S. Lewis uses here. Well, when am I going to be allowed to see Michael? There's no question of being allowed, Pam. As soon as it's possible for him to see you, of course he will. You need to be thickened up a bit. How, the, the ghost says. The monosyllable was hard and a little threatening. I'm afraid the first step is a hard one, said Reginald. But after that, you'll go on like the house on fire. You'll become solid enough for Michael to perceive you uh, when you learn to want someone else besides Michael. There we go. You'll become solid enough when you learn to want someone else besides Michael. I don't say more than Michael, not as a beginning, That will come later. It's only a little germ of a desire for God that we need to start the process. But Pam's response is chilling. Oh, you mean religion and all that sort of thing? This is hardly the moment. And from you of all people, well, never mind. I'll do whatever is necessary. What do you want me to do? Come on, the sooner I begin it, the sooner they'll let me see my boy. I'm quite ready. But she doesn't really get the physics of heaven. And so Reginald tries to explain. Pam, do think. Don't you see that you are, you're not beginning at all as long as you are in that state of mind? You're treating God only as a means to Michael. But the whole thickening treatment consists of learning to want God for his own sake. You'll, you'll feel Pam's frustration here when she says, you wouldn't talk like that if you were a mother. We can identify with that, I think. She, she is a mother who's lost a son. Is there anything more harrowing? Her frustration is palpable. She says, If God loved me, he'd let me see my boy. If he loved me, why did he take away Michael from me? I wasn't going to say anything about that, but it's pretty hard to forgive, you know. And Reginald re- replies, for, for 10 years... You kept that ritual of grief. You kept his room exactly as he left it. 
keeping anniversaries, refusing to leave that house. Although Dick, her husband, Michael's father, and Muriel, Michael's sister, were both wretched there. Of course they were wretched. They didn't care. I know that. I soon learned to expect no real sympathy from them. You're wrong, Pam. No man ever loved uh, felt his son's death more than Dick. Not many girls loved their brothers better than Muriel. It wasn't against Michael they revolted. It was against you. Against having their whole life dominated by the tyranny of the past. And not really even Michael's past, but your past. You're, You're heartless. Everyone is heartless. The past was all I had. It was all you chose to have. It was the wrong way to deal with sorrow. It was Egyptian-like, embalming like a dead body like that room. Give me my boy, do you hear? I don't care about all your rules and regulations. I, I don't believe in a God who keeps mother and son apart. I believe in a God of love. No one has a right to come between me and my son, not even God. Tell him that to his face. I want my boy and I mean to have him. He is mine, do you understand? Mine, mine, mine forever and ever. Now the narrator of this story, he has a guide himself. And that guide leads him away, explaining that this conversation between Pam and Reginald will go on for a very long time. But there is still some hope for Pam Pam, as long as she realizes that her love for her son has turned into something else. The guide explains that sometimes human beings' natural love for one another helps them to love God and enter heaven. But sometimes humans' love distracts them from entering heaven and being truly happy. Love can be good as long as it's directed primarily at God. But it can also be dangerous. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. That's some next level doctrine right there. He goes on, He that receiveth a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he that receiveth a righteous man in the name of the righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whosoever shall give to drink uh, one of the little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. And so they go out, they departed, they go through the towns preaching the gospel and hailing everywhere. But when Jesus' friends uh, hear about him sending out messengers to proclaim that the kingdom of God has come, they go out and they try and commit him. They try and lay hold of him and say, he is beside himself. I don't know if we we talk enough about the fact that Jesus' own friends and family don't buy it. They think he's off his rocker. That's fascinating. So, what do we make of this story? The story on itself is so compelling. Uh, I think it deserves to be told on its own. Uh, I feel like if I interrupt too much, I'm like the guy talking during the movie who's like, who's he again? Wait, what's happening? (laughs) But what if we just read the text, no prejudice, no preconceived notions, no th- ways we think Jesus should be, 
Just throw all of that preconceived stuff out. Like, what do we see here? Who is Jesus? What is he about? Who is God? What is he about? Who are we? And what is our relationship to them? And what is our relationship from us to them, from them down to us and us up to them? Like, what is it? What did these stories tell us? Do you want to be with Jesus? Why? How do we make that happen? Dude, I want you to spend some time on this. Let it ruminate and let it boil through your brain. See what comes up. The Holy Ghost is going to teach you something just individually to you about the nature of God. And it's good. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.